six years ago when we came to Australia, uh, I met Chris in a church and uh, I met his lovely family, saw his family grow in numbers as well, and uh, he's got a really passionate heart and he loves God. Chris is going to bring the word today. Uh, so I want to uh, ask Chris to come up to the front and bring the word of God that he laid upon his heart for us this morning. It was a pleasure to be here. There's a lot of different ideas out there um, when it comes to Christianity. And so sometimes you have to be careful not to tread on too many toes. But uh, I trust that if I tread on your toe this morning that you'll forgive me. I want to look at a, a subject this morning that I've, over the years I've been a Christian now for, for 10 years, just before I, I moved over to Australia, back in New Zealand I got, I got saved, and, but I noticed a trend among new Christians, uh, it's also sadly a trend uh, among um, older Christians who should be uh, more mature, not older as in just age, but older as in years of having been a Christian, uh, that uh, it's, it's somewhat concerning, but uh, back in the, the mid-1900s, after a quarter century of black and white TVs, this is relevant, colour began to take over. And now we have colour TVs. Likewise, for centuries, black and white Bibles were being printed and had been printed on printing presses. And then at the start of the last century, of the 19th, the 20th century, colour Bibles started to appear. And they started to take over. They didn't include colour pictures, but rather... I'm not even sure I've got a red letter. I don't. But rather they had coloured letters. And I want to I want to read just a snippet here from Wikipedia as to where the red letter Bible came from, um, just for your, your interest. The inspiration for printing the words of Jesus in red apparently comes from Luke 22.20. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which I shed for you. And in 1899, Lewis Klops, then editor of the Christian Herald magazine, conceived the idea while working on an editorial. He asked his mentor what he thought of a testament with the words spoken by Jesus printed in red ink. And his mentor replied, It could do no harm, and it could most certainly do much good. So before I get too far into this message... Let me clarify that this is neither a defence nor an attack on red-letter Bibles. I'm impartial. I don't really mind whether your Bible has red letters or not. But rather I want to look at the interpretive process that often goes along with this focusing on the words of Jesus specifically. There's been a, a movement out there for... Uh, many years that is called red letter Christianity. It has been primarily promoted by two people, 
uh, Jim Wallace and Tony Compolo. But by and large, these two are using this movement ultimately to push a social gospel, a social gospel narrative. Now, a social gospel is where the good news is, is just helping the poor. The good news is just feeding um, the needy. It's, they, they kind of remove the Jesus Christ has come to save you from your sins part, but rather it's just... Um, so that, that's mainly what they're pushing. And although they, they say they're politically neutral, uh, they do lean very much to the left. But this is, this is one thing that they, they emphasise, and this is from their website I want to read. We emphasise the red letters because we believe that you can only understand the rest of the Bible when you read it from the perspective provided by Christ. Now on the surface, that doesn't sound too strange, but we're going to have a look at this this morning. And I want to look at what effect does this have on our theology when we put the majority of our focus on the red letters at the exclusion of the black letters. And then I want to look at what are the potential pitfalls that we can fall into. And the reason I bring up this topic is not because I want to address this movement per se, this movement called Red Letter Christianity, but because I see a similar interpretive process in almost all parts of Christendom. And in the, in the, although people may never have even heard of this movement called Red Letter Christianity, it's almost instinctive for a, a new Christian to pick up their Bible and, and read Scripture in this way. And I want to show some missing information uh, that reveals the problem that we fall into when we, we take just the words of Jesus and we make them more important than the rest of Scripture, but also the way we, we read it, in this generation at least, it's all to us. Everything has been spoken to us, is, is the way we often read it. So the general underlying principle of a, a red-letter Christian is to interpret all other Scripture through the red letters. In other words, if Jesus said it, all other scripture must bow to that and be harmonized or rejected. The other assumption is that everything Jesus spoke was for all mankind to follow. And that's a key one. That people read the letters of Jesus and because we happen to find the, the red letters of Jesus in our New Testament, we therefore, subconsciously often, assume that he's speaking directly to us in all cases. And so we'll get to that um, soon. So with these two underlying ideas, when we read scripture, if the text disagrees with the sayings of Jesus, the text is either outdated or needs to be understood differently to how we would, it would otherwise be read. Now, this is, this is, uh, this is what the red-letter Christian, this is how they look at, look at uh, the Bible. 
on, the, on another side note, the assumption is that we can, we can interpret the words of Jesus with little to no background as to what's actually going on on those pages, which can also be a very dangerous thing when you don't look at any, any of the background to the passages. I want to give you just one example here to, to see how this actually works in practice. Everyone knows that Jesus said to love your enemies. And it's true. We are, as Christians, to love our enemies. And so a reader the Christian, or the movement, would take that as an always and everywhere statement. And so the outworking is that a red-letter Christian, for instance, will be a pacifist. So, uh, and they'll, they'll oppose any form of human death, such as corporal punishment. But the problem is, is that when you get into, say, the, Paul's writings, we see that actually there are some cases where, say, corporal punishment is, is okay. Paul says that the government is a minister of God, for good, and if you do well, uh, if you do evil, you should be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so Paul is giving a case here where the government is actually, they have the authority to act out corporal punishment uh, under certain circumstances. Now Paul himself, he ended up being, being killed by the government. He was uh, put to death. And in fact, during his trials, he was saying that if I have done wrong, he says, I refuse not to die. In other words, if I have done wrong, put me to death. So Paul clearly didn't think that uh, corporal punishment was... He, he didn't disagree with it. So the problem that you end up with is if Jesus says, love your enemies, then a regular Christian has to disregard what Paul says because they, they see the red letters as trumping or you know, overpowering the black letters that, that Paul says. But this is where context comes in, where we need to understand what was Jesus saying, what is Paul saying, because there's context there that, that gives... Uh, they're both true. You can't just take one and throw out the other one. Do you understand that? You see, see what I mean? And this is the, the problem that we get to when we focus only on what Jesus said. We apply that to everywhere, um, and then we end up having to kind of disregard other scripture because uh, we, we're not looking at the context in amongst it. So there, there are a, a number of pitfalls with this type of hermeneutic. Now, her, hermeneutics is the interpretive methodology used to understand what a text says. So, and this is the, the problem we often have is we, we pick up the Bible and we assume that all the passages, the, the, the natural assumption is that all the passages are speaking directly to us. Now, that, that, that can be a fatal mistake because if I wrote a letter to my wife and somehow you got a hold of that letter, and you started interpreting everything as being written to you, it's going to get a bit confusing. Okay? There, there may be parts that are applicable to you, 
but we have to be careful that we don't take something that was promised to someone else at a different time and say, well, that is mine now. Okay? When we take the words of Jesus and make them more important than the rest of Scripture, we essentially nullify 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable. All Scripture. Not just the red letters are inspired, not just the red letters are profitable, but all Scripture is inspired of God. Nowhere does it say or insinuate that some Scripture is more inspired than other Scripture. All Scripture is inspired of God. So if all Scripture is God-breathed, that's what the word means, God-breathed, it's come forth from God, that would suggest that even the black letters have come from the mind of God too, not just the red letters which were spoken by Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God. All the way from Genesis, all the way to Revelation, is all from God. Some do this with the Ten Commandments. They, they say that the Ten Commandments are more important because God wrote them with his very own hand or his very own finger. But as a friend of mine says, he says, since when does what God write, since when is that more important than what God says? They're both important. They both come from God. So just because God writes something doesn't necessarily make it more important than what God says. And so we enter a dangerous, slippery slope when we start deciding for ourselves which scriptures we deem to be more important than others. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the words of Christ in what I'm saying. What what we read in the, the Gospels and we see in red are exceptionally important because, not because of their colour, but because of the weight of theology that we find in his words and in these passages. The, these, those three years of his ministry, there's a lot of theology in there. So it's very important. But just because they're read doesn't make them trump the other scripture. So, and another important thing with the Gospels is that we must remember when we're reading them is that this is a, there's, there's a covenantal change occurring from the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant and law, and there's a transition happening to the new covenant. Okay, and if we aren't aware of that covenantal change, then we can get very confused when we start reading the words of Jesus. And so, these are just a couple of things to, to ponder because we're going to get a little bit deeper into it uh, as we go. So there was this covenantal change, and although what was occurring was exactly what had been prophesied, and what God had planned from the beginning, 
the Jewish leaders consider it to be completely contrary to all that they taught. Now, it was contrary to a lot of what they taught because much of what they taught was contrary to the word of God. They had put this, <clears throat> this big wall up around the Mosaic law. Um, they, call it, they, they put a fence around the law, so much so that the fence became more important than the actual law itself. And that's, that's the issue you see with Jesus confronting many of the Jewish leaders as they held their traditions as more important than the word of God itself. And that's what Jesus had an issue with, was that they were, they were making the word of God of none, no effect because of their traditions, which may have started out with good intentions, but over time had led them astray. So when we begin to read the Gospels, especially as babes in Christ, there are mountains of things that we don't understand. In fact, there's probably just about everything we don't understand as babes in Christ when we, we come to the Gospels and start reading them. And a pitfall, the pitfall of focusing on the red letters at the exclusion of the rest of Scripture is the skewed context that we can get. We miss the context of what Jesus is addressing. And we subconsciously, or perhaps even consciously, we begin to take the words of Jesus as always being applicable to us here in the New Covenant as, in, as, a, as a Christian. We start reading the Gospels having not been brought up in the Torah or in the Prophets, which his audience at the time had been. They'd been brought up with the, the Torah, and they'd been brought up with the Prophets. And so that was the con much of the context or the background that made what he said make sense. And because we, I'm assuming, at least in here, the majority of us are Gentiles, we don't have that same background. We don't have that same upbringing. And therefore, we can miss a lot of what Jesus is actually saying. Because much of what Jesus is doing is he's taking from what God has already taught and what God has already promised, and he's expounding it. He's teaching upon it. He's pointing people to the word of God, what God has already promised. And we can miss a lot of that as Gentiles, having not been brought up uh, in, in the word of God. And so, for, exa for example, when Jesus cries out, I am the bread of life, or if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, we miss the context of it. We don't know what he's talking about. We, we forget that Israel lived off miraculous food for 40 years in the wilderness. We forget that they drank from a rock, a spiritual rock, as Paul talk, talks about. So we, we miss all that context um, because we, we don't have that, the background information. We also miss a lot of the festivals that are going on behind the scenes of, of when he's speaking these things. There's festivals going on that all add to the meaning and context of what he's saying. And so much of what Jesus does and says is pointing his hearers 
to see him as the Messiah, he's, he's through, through what he's doing, through his miracles, through his teaching, he's pointing to the fact that he is the promised Messiah, the anointed one that, that had been promised long ago. In John 20, it says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So now that's the purpose of why John wrote his gospel, but it's also the purpose of what Jesus, most of what Jesus was saying, was to show people that he was the Messiah. So there's still a lot that we can take, obviously, from, from the Gospels as Gentiles. It's not all irrelevant to us, uh, but we must not forget the immediate context of what, is, what Jesus is saying and who he's speaking to. Remember, Jesus' ministry was primarily to the household of Israel. Correct? We as Gentiles, we've been grafted into that. We've been grafted into the, the spiritual blessing of Israel. But as Gentiles, we were not the primary focus for Jesus' ministry here on earth at the time. And that can affect how we read the Gospels and how we read those red letters because we can start taking what he said to Israel who were under the law and if we start applying it to ourselves, in this covenant, we run into big problems. It affects how we read the Gospels, and it affects how we read the words of Jesus. Especially when you consider the, the Hellenistic or the, the Greek mindset that we've been brought up in, in the West. We have not been brought up with the Eastern way of thinking. And so we, we look at things differently. And so that, that's a big problem just reading the, the Bible as a whole is the mindset or the way of thinking that we often come to where we like things lined up chronologically for us. But that's not always how the, the, the Eastern mind uh, would work. Jesus teaches a lot about the coming kingdom and also prepares his disciples for the dispensation after his death. So there is certainly a lot there that does apply directly to us as the church because he's, he's teaching his disciples, he's getting them ready for that new covenant that was coming. But we have to be careful that our way of thinking, the perspective that we come from as primarily Gentiles, primarily you know, West Greek thinkers, that that doesn't mess with the context of the text. So I want to look at one main thing that, that is the most concerning, I think, when we, we read the Gospels without these considerations in mind. And the one thing that I think confuses people the most when they read the Gospels is when they see Jesus reaffirming the need to keep the law. 
This is one that, that gets a lot of people confused because they, they turn to the New Testament and they think, well, the New Testament is us. We live in the New Testament. But why is Jesus telling me to keep the law? And so it causes a lot of confusion. And so I want to look at kind of this, this aspect about keeping the law. And as I've said, we need to remember who Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish, the, the, the nation of Israel, who were still under the law. They were still under the Mosaic covenantal law, which was still in effect. So, of course, it would make sense that Jesus would affirm it and tell them to keep it because they were still under it. He's not going to tell them not to keep it, which would be breaking the law. He was going to tell them to, to keep the law. But that doesn't mean that he's endorsing its eternal observance. But rather, until the new covenant was established, they must keep the old. Does that make sense? The new covenant, when was that signed? That was signed in his blood. That was the new covenant. But Jesus wasn't yet on the cross. And so the new covenant had not been established. And if we're not careful with how we apply the words of Jesus, along with how we read the epistles, uh, we can very quickly end up in a mess. For, for, for example, oftentimes if we read what is not actually for us, but we apply it to us, we end up in replacement theology, where we actually disregard Israel completely and say, well, the church has replaced Israel, Israel no longer is in God's place, we've taken it. That's because we misread who Jesus is speaking to, and we, we go and take it all for ourselves. But uh, Romans makes it clear that, that there's been a, a partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. God still has a plan for Israel. We haven't, Israel's not out of God's picture, and now we, we've taken, taken the, the place. Not at all. We are currently in the church age, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but God still has his plan for the children of Israel. Actually, he has a, he has a lot installed for them. Much of end time prophecy concerns them. But, but we can often end up with this kind of replacement theology mindset when we read passages out of context. We, we take passages written exclusively for Israel and then we reply to ourselves. And a, and a very, <laughs> this, I'm sorry to, uh, to burst any bubbles here this morning, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy a verse for you, which is probably the most common verse you'll read if you go to a Christian bookstore but it's not written to us. It was written to Israel. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's a beautiful verse. And it was for Israel, who were in exile 
and God was saying, I have not forgotten you. It's a beautiful verse, but it wasn't written to us. That's not to say that, that there is not hope in a future for us, but we can't use that verse. There are plenty of other verses that we can use that were written for us. So we have to be careful when we take things that were written to a specific people in a specific time in a context and not just going, oh, I want that one, sounds good. Stick it on a cup, stick it on a T-shirt. That doesn't mean we don't read it, but it gives us context to God's character because we learn about God, that God loves his people, that God cares about his people. So it teaches us about God, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily spoken to us. We can certainly take principles from it regarding God's love and his care for his people. Let me move into why did Jesus come and live? It's worth emphasizing the reason Jesus came. He came first and foremost for the lost sheep of Israel to seek and save that which was lost. He came to save his people from their sins. And despite the fact that they rejected him, by and large, he still accomplished his mission. And as told by Jeremiah the prophet, a new covenant would be established. So the mission included his revealing to the nation of Israel, that he would, he would reveal to the nation of Israel his messiahship. And he did this by way of signs and wonders and fulfilling prophecies that he had no control over. Humanly speaking, he had no control over them. He couldn't control where he was born, where he was raised. As God he could, but as humanly speaking, he couldn't control it. But all this testified to the fact that he was the promised Messiah. He was the one Israel was waiting for. He came as that Messiah. But sadly, by and large, he was missed. So the second question, did Jesus have to keep the Mosaic law? Now, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to complete it, to fulfill it. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus was born under the law in order to fulfill all righteousness. He had to obey the Mosaic law. He had to be that perfect, spotless lamb, that sinless substitute for us. Of course, he was the only one who had ever kept the law perfectly. He was the perfect one. Had he failed to obey it, then there would be accusations of sin against him. Now, the, the Pharisees had plenty of accusations, but their accusations were concerning their traditions. Jesus didn't want to keep their traditions, but he certainly kept the law, 
God's law in its pure form, the way God had given it. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus was able to be that perfect offering for sin because he was sinless. He was the perfect spotless lamb without blemish. And we know that during his crucifixion, he cried out, it is finished. It's complete. He had done everything that was required and had been prophesied for his earthly ministry. It wasn't just that it is finished as in the payment has been made, but it's all been done. Everything that he was supposed to do had been done. All the prophecies regarding his earthly ministry had been done. And the law of Moses was finished. The schoolmaster, this schoolmaster, was able to retire for it had completed its task. That's from Galatians. Galatians 3, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, our teacher, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That was the purpose of the law, to be a guide and a teacher to bring us to Christ. That was it. That was the purpose of the law, to lead men to Christ for salvation through faith. Not through keeping the law. No one was ever saved through keeping of the law. But was to lead us to Christ. To be a guide, a teacher, to lead to Jesus. In, in fact, Paul talks about the law being an instrument of death. Because all it could do was condemn. It's all it could do was tell you that you've done wrong. But that's what it was for. It was to bring the knowledge of sin so that we might turn to God for forgiveness. That was the purpose. It was a mirror to reveal our own wickedness and inability to be made righteous in and of ourselves and thereby lead us to Christ for forgiveness and salvation through faith. And although the Mosaic law was given to Israel to keep, it was still universally able to condemn because none of us could live up to it. None of us could keep its high standard. It was in, in some ways a reflection of God's righteousness of his perfection, of his holiness, of which we've all fallen short. Now, now when I say we've fallen short, I don't mean like a long jump, long jump person coming a couple of inches short of getting the gold medal. I mean like short as in we were disqualified before we even ran down the track. Like we, <laughs> we didn't even keep a fraction of it we come short. And that's what Romans says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
do we have to keep the Mosaic law? Mosaic law. That's the, the next question. Jesus had to keep it because he was, he was the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. He was, he was born under the law to redeem a people who are under the law. But then we know that at his death, he established a new covenant. So it's, it's important to remember, and this is where the context of passages come into when we read the Mosaic law, it was given to Israel. It was given to Israel to keep. And Gentiles could only partake of it if they became part of Israel and they were circumcised. They had to be converted to, to Judaism. Um, and so it was given to Israel. But as I've mentioned, it was completed with Christ's death. As Paul says after quoting the passage from Jeremiah about the new covenant, he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Hebrews 8. So when he talks about the new covenant, it means he's made the first obsolete. The old Mosaic law is obsolete. It's no more. It's done away with. It's fulfilled its purpose. And Jeremiah promised that a new covenant was coming. And, and Paul further points out that for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. That's Hebrews 8. And he adds in the next chapter, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Hebrews 9. So we are no longer, we are not bound by the requirements of the 613 Mosaic laws. And Paul deals with this a lot, especially in the book of Galatians. But it's also dealt with, we see it at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. We see that Acts 15, it says, the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. No requirement to keep the law. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And then James got up 
and said, Brethren, listen to me. It's a good way to start, isn't it? Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, this is a quote from the Old Testament, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. James continues, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. Abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what's strangled, and from fornication. Fornication. That was it. No requirement to keep the Mosaic law. No sacrifices, no Sabbath keeping. In fact, in Galatians 2, uh, when Paul talks about having to confront Peter, he even says that, but Peter, you live like the Gentiles. Why is it now that you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, because other, other Jews have come, that now you're, you're kind of keeping away from the Gentiles? Paul says, but you, you live like the Gentiles. Why are you being a hypocrite? But that doesn't mean, just because we're not under the Mosaic law, it doesn't mean we get away scot-free. We are not antinomians. We're not without law. But we are under the law of Christ. We are told throughout the New Testament writings that if we love Jesus, we will keep his commands. Which is basically saying that if we don't obey his commands, we don't love him. Correct? If we love him, we'll keep his commands. If we don't keep his commands, it probably means we don't love him. This, of course, begs the question, which commands and how many? What are these commands? Now, this, this theme of keeping commandments uh, is actually probably the strongest in the writings of the Apostle John, uh, both in his Gospel and his, his epistles. And it sounds much more laboursome than it actually is. We get the first hint of it from John's Gospel. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. But he warns the people not to labour and work for food which merely perishes. He says in John 6, verse 28, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's a key verse. And it gives 
a lot of context to much of what Jesus was teaching and to the writings of John because he, he keeps this theme going. There's another key verse. It was given shortly after Jesus washed his disciples' feet. In John 13 we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And as we move into the, the epistles, we read over and over again, especially in John's epistles, to keep God's commands. And for many people, this causes confusion because in our brains, at least I'll say in my, my, my little pea brain, it's, we, I, when I think of commands, I think Old Testament. When I think of commands, I think Ten Commandments, Mosaic Law, 613, and it's always talking about keeping these commandments. And I believe for a lot of Christians, new Christians, this can bring confusion. I've, I've heard it from pastors about keeping the commandments. And when they hear the word command, they turn to the Old Testament. And they start preaching, well, this is what we have to keep. And so, to be a Christian, we have to keep a bunch of commands. Oh, I, thought, I thought there was supposed to be a release of burden. We see this in John's epistles. And we read it over and over again. I'm going to read you some. First John, chapter 2. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 John 2, verse 3 to 6. Yippee, we get to keep commands. <laughs> that, that's, that's the way we often read it. Commandments, commandments. We have to keep his commandments. If we, we truly are a Christian, we will be keeping his commandments, which is true. But it continues. Let me read. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. After reading these passages, I know as I remember as a new Christian reading these passages and you just almost feel like there's a weight back on your shoulders. It's like, oh, I have to, it's rules, it's tick boxes, it's doing all these things to please God, to, to keep his commandments. It feels just like Israel when they had to keep all these commandments. Until you read John's conclusion. John is going to tell us what these commandments are. So don't miss it. Because he only uses one verse to tell us what these commandments are. 1 John 3.23 this is his 
commandment. That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Did you miss that? This is his commandment, that you believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and you love one another just as he commanded us. That's it. Believe and love. And we know that Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. And that's not to say that the law still applies, but if we love, we fulfill it. But we're not without love. So when you read in the New Testament that we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't murder, it's not that there is a, a law or the Old Testament law that we're having to keep, but we live by the law of love. If we love one another, we won't cheat them. We won't gossip about them. We won't steal from them or kill them or take, their, take our neighbor's wife because love is actually a higher standard than the law. But this is the commandment, that we, we believe on Jesus and we love one another. So how do we interpret the words of Jesus? Much of what Jesus does and says is pointing his hearers to see him as the Messiah, as I mentioned. The Gospels focus in to declare that he was indeed the promised Messiah. He was performing miracles only the Messiah was able to do. He healed a blind man who had been blind from birth. That was a messianic miracle that only the Messiah could perform. He cast out dumb spirits. Again, a messianic miracle. Because the way the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders would do the exorcisms is they would first get contact with the spirit, they would find out the spirit's name, and then they would cast it out. But they couldn't do that with a dumb spirit who couldn't speak. And so in the Jewish mindset, casting out a dumb spirit was a messianic miracle that only the Messiah could do. He cleansed a Jewish leper, which again was seen in the Jewish mind as a messianic miracle. In Isaiah 35 it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. This is looking forward towards the, the Messiah. And that's why when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him a question, it says, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for another one, for someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, 
and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. The poor have the gospel preached to them. That's in Luke 7. We have to remember that John had been in prison for much of Jesus' ministry. He hadn't witnessed a lot of these miracles. But Jesus has sent his disciples back to him to essentially say he is fulfilling the words of Isaiah. He is doing what the Messiah was promised to do. In other words, yes, he is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And there was, there was much that Jesus did that confirmed him as the Messiah. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. He was greater than Moses. He was the son of David. He was born in Bethlehem. He was called out of Egypt, called a Nazarene, forsaken and rejected. He was unmistakably the Jewish Messiah. So all this information should guide us in the interpretive process when we read the Gospels, when we remember the focus of Jesus' earthly ministry, when we, when we remember the promise, like Jeremiah, that a new covenant was coming, when we remember that the audience Jesus was speaking to was still under the law, but there was a new covenant coming. This helps when we look at the scripture and read it to understand who's he speaking to, what is applied directly to us, what is not applied directly to us. And it helps us to understand what and why he said what he said. Remember what I read at the start from the Red Letter Christian website. It says, we emphasize the red letters because we believe that you can only understand the rest of the Bible when you read it from the perspective provided by Christ. The reality is, is you actually can't really understand much of what Jesus is talking about unless you're familiar with the rest of Scripture. Because much of what he says is expounding the rest of Scripture, the Old Testament prophets, and fulfilling them. But if we neglect the rest of Scripture, then we're going to miss much of what Jesus is addressing. The Old Testament gives the necessary context to what Jesus says and to the New Testament understanding and theology. In fact, uh, there's, there's a mission organisation I've, I've watched a couple of videos of lately who do a lot of work to native peoples and their method of sharing the gospel is starting from Genesis and working through until they get to, to Jesus because they've realised that sharing the gospel God has come to die for your sins makes no sense unless you understand what is sin where did we sin, how do we sin and we understand the redemptive process that God has laid out that, about the fall of man, the perfect creation, and that man has continued to rebel, that God had promised a coming Messiah, and then here is that promised Messiah. Without that context, it makes very little sense. So I encourage you to 
to when you get to your Bible, not to make the mistake, it's not a mistake per se, but not to become too comfortable with that portion of your Bible, which is about a quarter, and the neglect of this portion of the Bible. Because much of this won't make much sense without the knowledge of the other three quarters. And it may be hard going, but that's okay. It's allowed to be hard going. Don't be afraid of the seemingly boring, irrelevant sections, because it's not irrelevant. It may not be directly applicable, but it's certainly not irrelevant because it gives understanding and context to other scripture. Even the genealogies, which seem, when you're reading through them, and long passages, they seem, why, Lord? (laughs) Why are they there? But remember, God promised from Genesis that there would be a seed. How do we follow that seed along without genealogies? How do we read, we, like when you read Esther, which is a beautiful book, and you see this plan to eradicate the Jews, what's happening there? Remember the seed. The eradic- if, if, if the enemy can get rid of the seed, they get rid of the promise. And so all these stories which, you know, on the surface we go, why is that there? There's context to it. It just takes a little time to, 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 to understand and see what's going on. So let me finish by saying, I like red letters. In fact, oh, I wouldn't care if there were more colours. There were blue letters, maybe for promises and green letters for commands, purple letters. Apparently there is one, actually. It's called the Rainbow Bible. I haven't seen it, but... Um, I, I bring up the red letters because the interpretive process that usually goes on when we focus in on only what Jesus says and we forget the context behind it, forget who he was speaking to, why he was speaking, and it can, can lead us down these rabbit trails uh, if, we, if we miss the context of these passages. It's not the colours that matter, but it's the context of the passages and how we interpret them. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Lord, when you say in in your Old Testament that you were going to bring a famine, Lord, not of food, Lord, but you were going to bring a famine of your word. What a terrifying thing that would be to not have your word to guide us. Lord, to be left without a guide. And we are so thankful that we have your word, Lord. We have your word in abundance in this country. Don't let us neglect or take advantage, Lord, to become lazy with your word. But Lord, may we put your word above our own necessary food. Lord, that we would hold it with the respect and reverence it deserves. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding as we read it, Lord. Help us to see the context. Help us to see what's going on. 
Help us to see what it is that you have asked us to do and what you would have us do in this day and age. Father, as my brother prayed earlier, that the, the days are getting darker, Lord. But Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the opportunity, Lord, to make the most of these dark days to proclaim your glorious gospel to this lost and dying world, Lord, that before time does run out, that they would come to know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. Father, bless these people as they go. May you continue to grow this church, Lord. Bless John as he's away today, Lord. May your name be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.